Well, good morning, everybody. I want to say welcome to everybody in this room and welcome to everybody joining us online. Wasn't it great to wake up this morning and the sun was actually shining and you could see it? You could actually see the sun. I'm believing at some point, right, spring will give way to summer and we will see a drier climate. But it, it was great. It's driving out and seeing the trees turning. And it was kind of a probably I'm a little more reflective today because I had one of those weeks in life. Like I turned 50 this past week. So I felt the love. Thank you so much. I felt the love. The staff did a great job throwing a party filled with all kinds of black and other things, and they wrote on the whiteboard all the things that were happening in 1969 that three-quarters of the staff had no idea about what was going on in 1969, but thanks for all the kind texts and messages and all that. And then I got home towards the end of the day on Tuesday, and Kendra's like, hey, birthday mail, and I'm like, oh, I'm excited about birthday mail, right? It's like the one day of the year where you're like excited to get stuff in the mail, right? So I sit down and she hands me this envelope. So here it is. This is what she puts in my hands. So right here, yeah, I was like, welcome to the 50s club. And then up in the upper left-hand corner is what I was on the struggle bus with. So my name connected to AARP, like, right? I should go for that free Bluetooth speaker, don't you think? That's the... Uh, yeah, so I just had one of those weeks, right? I was thinking about that. I, I'm turning 50, and Lily, our oldest, is graduating from high school uh, in about a month. So you're thinking about that and all these kind of like passageway moments in life. And it reminded me why I love biographies so much. Now, some of you who love to read biographies with me, others of you go, why would you gut your way through biographies? Well, one of, the thing, one of the reasons I love them so much is that you're able to just kind of trace the footprints of someone else's life and the kinds of highs and lows and ups and downs and threshold moments, and you can learn a ton from what others have journeyed through. And, and so I am so excited this morning to begin what I'm going to call like a biographical series on the life of David. I mean, just a gigantic figure for the people of God. I've been so fired up about this series for months. And it's about, because David, he's such, a, he's such a large figure for the people of God for literally centuries now, is that 66 chapters are covered with David. The single character in the Bible that has the most, most real estate in this book, the life of David, even more than Jesus. It's like there's more covered on David's life. And then think about like, just think about with the life of David itself, even today when you go to the country of Israel and you see them fly their country flag, here's the flag of Israel, here's what it looks like, and what's in the center? The star of David, right? And so even Israel today, by their national flag, and we're indebted in the songs we sing, our worship team does a great job week after week, and in the songs we sing, the most of them are rooted in the Psalms of David, the prayers we pray. We've been trained to pray with David. We've been trained to sing and worship with David. 73 of 150 Psalms are from David himself. And then you look at the very last chapter of the Bible. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is communicating his final words. Last chapter, last few paragraphs, he says, I am from the root and offspring of David. That's like his parting 
So David's life, I just think there's so much we could learn from the life of David. So I just want you to kind of settle in now, right? This is day one. This is like when you pick up a biography and you're reading kind of the introductory section of the life. And that's where we're going to start this morning. And then we're just going to track David for the next several months. And we're going to learn and grow with all the ups and downs and swings of David's life. And I love what Eugene Peterson, here's what his summary is of David. I put this quote in your notes. If you haven't pulled out your notes yet, you should have received a bulletin on the way in the door. You can download our app and our message notes are out there electronically on the app. And here's what Peterson says. The single most characteristic thing about David is God. David believed in God thought about God, imagined God, addressed God, prayed to God. The largest part of David's existence wasn't David, but God. I thought, wouldn't that be a wonderful legacy to leave? I'd love for that to be said at the end of my run, right? That people say, hey, you know, we're going to get together and we're going to remember Eric Simpson's life. Wouldn't it be great to have said of our lives, the largest part of our existence wasn't ourselves, but it was really God. That's David. And yet, as we'll see in the months ahead, David was a mixed bag. David's life was filled with mountaintop God moments and then valley cringe moments. David's life was not an all-put-together kind of life. David's life was what I'm going to call through the series not an ideal life, but a real life. Like, David, he had like He was a terrible husband and father. He didn't handle his power super great. He sinned in breathtaking ways. David is a mixed bag, kind of like all of us, right? That's kind of like, definitely like me. I'm just kind of this mixed bag. But there's something about David that in his mixed bag, even when the compass would get out of sorts, there was a true north for David's compass, and it went Godward. Even in his brokenness, even in his failure, even in his sin, even in his cringe moments, in his mistakes, his resume is all over the map. And that's why I think David is such a good life for us. It's real life. We're not going to position him as the ideal life, though I think we can learn a lot from how he handled things. But we're also going to learn a lot about just real everyday life because it's filled with brokenness and mess and it's complicated and we're complicated and God's faithful. God didn't give up on David. He's not going to give up on us. And so I hope you're looking forward to just settling in for the journey together. We're going to start this morning where David's story begins. So the introductory part of David is in 1 Samuel 16. So if you want to be reading ahead and reading along with where we're going in the series, if you start in 1 Samuel 16 and just go you'll be able to kind of see where the pathway ahead is going for us. So here's how David is inserted into God's story. Verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, now Samuel's the prophet who's in charge of appointing the next leader for the nation of Israel. Saul is king number one in Israel. It says, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? So that tells you about all you need to know about how Saul was finishing his leadership reign. Saul started out well, and then he had a fading in his finishing, right? That's a whole other discussion for a whole other day, but Saul's second half was a fading to the finish, and we don't want to exit like Saul exited, where God said, you know what, Saul, you're so far off the rails that I've got to move my anointing and my blessing from you, king one, and I'm going to pick a new king, king number two. So Saul, if you remember the backdrop, Saul was the people's choice. They were clamoring for a king, and God said, you might want to second-guess that decision. And just like 
many of the examples in the Bible, majority doesn't always hold wisdom. Probably not something bad for us to learn right early on in life. Like general pattern in the Bible is majority when they're clamoring for something isn't generally towards the path of wisdom. And in this case, they're like, we want a king like all the other nations. And God's like, you better. And they give him Saul, and then Saul goes off. And so he's like, all right, now we got to go king two, insert king two. And this is where David is in the story. It says, fill your horn with oil, he tells Samuel, be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, verse 2, but Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. Now, that's a valid concern, right? You're going to go anoint king number two while king number one is still on the throne. Yeah, that's going to be a little rough. You see why it's like Samuel's like, hey, you know, how am I going to do this? Now, at this point, Samuel doesn't know what king number two's name is. And he's probably in his head thinking Jesse has eight sons and his like, cream of the crop are in the older son, so he's probably immediately thinking some of their names, and that's what's happening here in the story. And look, the Lord says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 3, invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I will show him what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. And then verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord said. That's a great picture. Like Samuel, it's really hard, and it's not quite clear, but God wants it done, so Samuel's got a great picture of kind of immediate, immediate obedience, not like delayed obedience or, you know, you know, the combative obedience. or all. He's just like, okay, Lord, I don't quite understand it. I'm not quite sure how this is going to unfold, but you made it clear this is what I want you to do. I'm going to do it. That's what Samuel, okay, I'm going to do it. So he gets, gets them all together, and they're having this big feast now. And at the end of the big feast is supposed to be this anointing, a big moment for the nation of Israel. Verse 6, when they arrived... Samuel saw Eliab, that's the oldest son of Jesse, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, that's a great verse. Verse 7 is a great one. That's one of those underline and star in your Bible, right? So here's Here's what the Lord's saying to Samuel. It's like, hey, I know you're distracted by how strong and powerful and on the exterior, like outwardly, his older sons look amazing, like king material. And God says, hey, be careful. Don't get enamored with the outside. I'm looking at something on the inside. God's looking at the, what I'm going to call the beams of the interior world. The beams of the interior world, are they thick? Are they strong? Are they dense enough to handle what he's about to entrust in responsibility of leadership? It reminded me when I was a younger pastor, and I, went, uh, I heard about an older pastor who was in town, someone I'd looked up to, and I'd never met, but I'd kind of felt like I'd met them through their writings and their teachings, and I heard he was in town, there was a big old gathering happening at one of the churches in the area, and, and I showed up early, and I got great seats, and it was a great night, and the worship was great, and of course, he, his message was amazing, and I, I was looking forward to meeting him afterwards, so I go down front to meet him. This person I looked up to and I had all kinds of books and listened to all kinds of messages. And when I got to the front to meet him, I was greeted by like one of these guys. I was greeted by Eliab type guy, real big guy, like an Eliab type guy who was like, I was introduced, he was an elder from this pastor's church and the pastor was gone. He wasn't there anymore. 
And I said to him, I said, hey, I was just looking forward to, to meeting so-and-so. And then he said this to me. He said, we have to keep him away from the people. And my face looks a lot like your faces right now. And then he said this, but he can fill the room. Did you hear that? Then he said, look at this crowd. But we got to keep him away from the people. I remember driving away from that. I was in my mid-20s. I I whispered a prayer something like, Lord, I have no idea what all that's about. I'm sure there's a lot more to that story. This is not judgment-free zone. I'm not placing judgment there. I just said, Lord, could you please not let me go down that road? Whatever that is. Because when I understand, Jesus, of what you talk about, what does it mean to love you with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that he connects it to loving people, like the people who are closest to us and who spend the most time with us, that it be genuinely said that we're growing in our love for the people around us. And never at the expense of, so you can fill the room, but we'll escort you off the back. You tracking with me? For me, I, I think it's what God's cautioning Samuel about here. He's saying, hey, now I know there's some amazing gifts right in front. I mean, giftedness, unbelievable. And when giftedness gets kind of exceeding the pace of the character development, when giftedness and character goes like that, you tracking with me? When giftedness and character goes like that, implode is just a matter of when. It's no longer a question of if. So what God's looking for is he wants to know if the interior beams of the character world are going to keep pace to uphold the giftedness development, the leadership responsibilities that are going to be entrusted. Can this keep pace with that? And that's how we need to pray for a generation of leaders to grow up in our land. This is what we pray for. Mom, dad, all of you student and children's ministry workers, everybody in the trenches with the younger generation, how do we pray? We pray for that. Because usually we can spot unbelievable gifts in front of us, but here's the key. We've got to be the kind of leaders ahead of them that point to what the Lord's saying here. Hey, pay attention to what's going on in here. Because we can get enamored with the outside and lose sight of the inside. And when that happens, so Samuel's getting a lesson here. Watch what happens. This is why verse 8 reads like this. Jesse called Abinadab, next oldest son, had him pass in front. Of Samuel, because Jesse's thinking what Samuel's thinking. Well, if it isn't Eliab, it's going to be Abinadab. Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah, the next one, pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 10, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Verse 11, so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Do you picture that scene? It's like, hey, wait. Jesse's supposed to be here. One of them's going to be king. We're 0 for 7. Jesse, do you have anybody else? No one else is at the feast. Hmm. Jesse answers, yes, but he's tending the sheep, not even invited to the party. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent, verse 12, and had him brought in. 
He was ruddy, which that word means red, probably had to do with the skin tone. And because he spent so much time outside, I, I like to think of it as he was probably really sunburned. So with a fine appearance and handsome features. Now notice, having exterior features, uh, features like that. It's fine to have like exterior strength and he looked good. That doesn't exclude him, but listen, it doesn't define him. There's a difference between being defined by the exterior and then being excluded by that exterior. David had some strong exterior as well, but there was something deeper inside of him. God saw inside the beams of the interior world. Verse 13, look what it says. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. Verse 13, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of all his brothers. David's 30 years old at this part of the story. So he's 30. Keep a hold of that as we track through the story. So, so here, we're going we're gonna to harvest out today. We're going to look at kind of two principles for our lives today when we think about the way God has drafted David into the story. First principle comes from this section right here. It says, God, I put it this way, God gets his work done in this world through ordinary people. Ordinary people. The Hebrew word for ordinary is going to be kind of our word for the day. Hagaton. I don't have the ch, like the Jews have such a great ability. I'm just an Iowa boy, Indiana, so you're going to have to you know, rough it out with me here. Hagaton. That word means ordinary. Insignificant, nothing special, average every day. Hagaton. That's how God, hey, that's what God does to get his work done. From the opening pages of this book, it's a story of a community of hagatons who get hooked up with God, and he gets his work done in the world through them. For example, think about in the Old Testament, Joseph, he gets tossed in a cistern, he's sold to some Ishmaelite brother, some Ishmaelite merchants. Moses, he's a Jewish boy in a little basket going down the Nile River, just trying to survive. How about Jeremiah, a pastor's kid? Amos was a farmer, Peter a fisherman, Matthew a tax collector, Luke a physician. And here's David, a sheep herding family runt, not even invited to the banquet, just an overlooked, nothing special, leave him in the fields. It's certainly not going to be him, the Hagaton. That's God's. Rise and anoint him. He is the one. In a sense, isn't that really us here? We're like a community. Our gathering on Sunday morning, we're a gathering of hackathons. We're, we're average, ordinary people. Look at us. We're just, we're just ordinary, run-of-the-mill, right? We're just everyday life. I thought about, when I was thinking about this part of the message, I thought about, like, a story from Easter that we had. Wasn't it great when we listened to James Henry's story? from Easter. Did you guys enjoy that part? It was such a great story, James, sharing what you shared. And you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of a hackathon who moved into the Flats apartment in Lebanon named Norma Jean Osborne. Do you guys know Norma Jean? Here's a picture of Norma Jean. This is what they're doing on Wednesdays, right? So Wednesdays at the Flats apartment in Lebanon, Norma Jean, who's there on the left, and there's Roger and James. I mean, she's got folks like Six years ago, Norma Jean was praying about where God wanted her to move, and she sensed God wanted her in the Flats Department of Lebanon. Well, I know a bunch of people are super grateful she said yes to that, like James Henry's story and Roger's story and other story, and she just serves, open up God's good book, as James said, and, and she bakes cookies for neighbors, and she does meals, and she had another friend here on Easter, I think it was 91, is that right, Jean, a 91-year-old neighbor with here on Easter Sunday, who just, you know, she, it's Jean. She, 
Revival is breaking out at the Flats apartment in Lebanon through Gene Osborne. Isn't that awesome? An average, everyday person. And then I thought about how there's, there's some hackathons driving buses in Zionsville. Do you know them? They're a part of our church too. Do you know Pam Michaels and Genevieve Collins? Do you know them? They're, they, do you know that Pam Michaels has been driving a bus in Zionsville for 38 years? Do you know that? And Genevieve for 14? And they love what they do, and they're so good at what they do. And, you know, they, they pray for their folks who are on the bus. They try to be a light to the students who come in and off, try to help their coworkers. Isn't that, that's, that's hackathons making a difference right there, the Zionsville bus system. And if you know the bus system at all, you need some light in there, like, right? Especially those middle school buses could use some light. Right there, there's your light. That's how God gets stuff done that way. Or I thought, of, I thought of Clarence Brabson. You guys know Clarence around here, right? You know Clarence, retired UPS driver? You know what Clarence is doing now for a part-time job? It's Clarence there. He trains kids to drive. He's really good at it. He trained Lily to drive, and he's trained a lot of your kids to drive. Do you know that You know Clarence views his ability to, to train the kids to drive as certainly a big part of his job? But you know it's, it's way bigger than that for Clarence. You know that? He really prays about the time he spends with those kids and driving around. And think about the conversations that happen. And, and usually, and sometimes it might happen around borderline crisis moments, right, as the kids learn how to drive. And so Clarence has a great moment right there to say, well, what if we didn't quite make that turn? And, no, but that's Cla- Clarence, he's a hackathon. He's an ordinary guy making a difference in people's lives by helping them learn how to drive. I thought about David Swinney. David's on slides today, running all these slides for us today. Here's a picture of David in January. That's him in Kenya. David's a He's a husband, he's a father, he's a chiropractor, and here he is in Kenya working with Remembered New, helping deal with the child trafficking issue in that country. There he is with his Bible, and he's got his translator beside him, and he's, he's leading some devotional with a bunch of kids there in Kenya. Yeah. Ask David or Nick, you're in, he just, hey, I'm just an ordinary guy. Or I look right down here on the aisle, they've got Jeff and Amy Lane all the way from Gabon, West Africa. Can we put our hands together for Jeff and Amy Lane back here? I think about Jeff and Amy... Wave, Jeff, wave. That's Jeff and Amy Lane, if you don't know them. Jeff and Amy, they were here in the early days of Eagle Church. I remember Jeff and Amy Lane when they were walking the aisle to get married. And I remember the day when Jeff said, you know, I'm going to go to med school. Just a regular old med school student. He's going to get a medical degree. And he ends up becoming an anesthesiologist. And, and they go off to Ohio. And he, he has an anesthesiologist practice. And they raise their kids. And life's rolling along great. And then God says, I pick you. Just... Hackathon folks, regular, average, ordinary, Jeff and Amy Lane, they'll tell you nothing super special, right? Great people, but nothing super special about Jeff and Amy. And God says, I pick you. I got some work I want to do in Gabon, West Africa, through Bongalo Hospital. You're going to move to France, and you're going to learn French for a year. You're going to sell a bunch of stuff in Ohio. You're going to, you're going to move. You're going to uproot. You're going to serve down at Bongalo, and you're going to train up a whole generation of physicians to be a light for me in that part of the world. That's Jeff and Amy Lane. How about that? Sure, I could just keep going around this room, right? I could put all different pictures of you up here doing whatever you're doing. Do you see? This is how God gets his work done in this world. He picks the average, the ordinary, the one not invited to even the banquet, the maybe overlooked, the nothing so special, nothing so standout. He picks them and he says, rise and anoint them. I picked them. They are the one. 
I think David's life is the basic biblical rebuke to the minimizing adjective just. I'm going to say that again. David's life is the basic biblical rebuke to the minimizing adjective just. Oh, I'm just a program manager. I'm just a systems analyst or I'm just a physician or I'm just an electrician or I'm just a stay-at-home parent or I'm just a small business owner or I'm just a plumber. I'm just a, you finish the blank. David's life says, no, you're, you're just, that, hey, you, he removes the just. He says, you may be average, you may be ordinary. Here's what you are in God's eyes. First round draft pick, Hagaton. Here's what God's looking for. He's scanning. He's looking for the beams of the interior world to maintain whatever he's going to entrust with. I'm looking at the inside. I'm looking at the density and the thickness and the weight of the stuff in here. I'm looking for the first round draft picks that on the outside, nothing so special, very ordinary, very Hagaton-like. I pick them. And I'm going to move my kingdom forward through them. He just strips off the just and he says, hey, you're linked up with me now. You're called, you're chosen, you're anointed, you're adopted, you're empowered by the Spirit. And he's purposed for you to do good works in advance. Ephesians 2.10 purpose. He's chosen you to do good works in advance that he's prepared for you. Every single one of us who've said yes to Jesus, that's what he's purposed for us. And the more ordinary you are, and the more obscure you are, the higher round draft pick you go in with God. You're in the higher round. If you're like Eliab and Abinadab, yep, you might be free agents. But you're like David, David, David's just being David. He's out in the fields, not even invited in. God says, I pick you. Let's go. Let's get some stuff done in this world. I love what, I think it's, I put this quote in your notes here. I love what Craig Barnes said about this section here. Stay with me here. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote. Somewhere around the midpoint of our lives, when we realize we're never going to find what the soul most craves, we resign ourselves merely to fulfilling the unremarkable requirements of life. At the end of an ordinary day, at our ordinary jobs, we drive home to our ordinary homes. There the evening passes by pretty much as we knew it would. We eat a meal, do the dishes, pay some bills, fall asleep watching television. Then we go back to the same job the next morning. Or once again, we shuttle the kids to school and soccer practices. Along the way, hear this now, we realize we have succumbed to our greatest fear in life. We are stuck with ourselves. Then one day, we discover that God has come looking for us right where we are in the ordinary places to which a room full of blue chairs this morning should say, Amen. God came looking for you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me. David's the first one. (laughs) Who was looking for who? Was David running around the field looking to do something great for God? David is just doing his family chores. And God's, I pick you. I pick you. I got some stuff that I need to get done in this world. I pick you. I draft you into the story. Which moves us into the second point now. So from this point, if, God, if God's looking for that 1 Samuel 16, 7 type interior world. If he's looking for the hagatons, then that thrusts us into the second observation. When he selects us and drafts us into what he's doing in this world, here's what we have to focus on. Our priority has to be on depth 
and relinquish the control for whatever God wants to do with breadth. So to say it more succinctly, we focus on depth and we let God take care of the breadth. Depth being paying attention to what's going on in here. In other words, soul work, inner life work, character development work, who are you becoming type work. Not just what you're doing. You know, we're all becoming something. Everyone's undergoing a formation. The question is simply what kind. We're all becoming different kinds of people as we move through life. God's just concerned about what kind of person we're becoming. And he's really burdened about that. He's looking in here and he's saying, hey, I want to see that formed and shaped in the image of Christ. The beams of this interior world that increasingly look like Jesus' life. That's what he's looking for. And so he picks David. And you think about David's life. Like, again, David isn't out there looking to do something great. He's just average, ordinary guy. He's a kid, eighth family runt. He's out in the field taking care of the cattle and the sheep and he's fending off the animals that try to come in and he's just doing his job and while he's doing his job God said yeah I pick you and he gets drafted into it but here's what here's what we're going to find out about David see see one of the things about David is he learned to locate God he had this ability this internal GPS to just locate God no matter what's going on in his life he could have been in the throes of a of a big mess out in the pasture land and the lions are come to attack the herd and he was able to locate God in those moments or in the quiet space of life or in the darkness of life or in the heartbreak of life, in the noise of life, in the quiet of life, everywhere in between. David located God, the strength of God, the goodness of God, the presence of God. He just had a way to, to find it and lean into it and pursue it. And this is what Mark Buchanan says about this, this is a skill every Christ follower needs to cultivate, finding God in the dark, resting in God in the turmoil, trusting in God in the teeth of catastrophe, being restored by God when all earthly comforts fail. So this is why what I'm saying, like, our focus has to be on pushing down the roots deep. I want you to think about drilling wells deeply in your life. So when you, when you come to Christ and he drafts you into his story, he immediately wants to say, hey, you need to put down some deep wells. This is our focus. We put on deep wells. What does that mean? It means you go deep with understanding this God-breathed book. Go deep with scripture. Go deep with prayer. Go deep with community. Go deep with trusting God. You go deep here. That's our focus. We put the roots and the well down deep. And then as your life moves along, it'll begin to spread out. God will move in breadth. And when you're moving out in breadth, you're going to have to draw upon all that depth. It's the depth-breadth principle here. And I think for David, right, so here's what we're going to see with David. He's 30 years old at this point, and man, he spent a good portion of his first 30 years drilling some deep wells, some deep wells now. Quite a bit of aloneness out in the hills and meadows, under the starlit sky. That's where a lot of the Psalms came from, right? It's David who said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Does that sound like someone who's putting their roots down deeply? You see that? That's David's life. It's because he, he stewarded those seasons of his life when to, to push down those roots deeply. And I know in my own life, I see a direct correlation between 
pace and depth. Anybody else find this in life? So as the pace of my life increases, I see a decreasing attentiveness to the stuff going on in here. So this is why you hear me talk often about why I think there's a connection between a slowed down spirituality and a strengthening the beams of the interior world. I don't think we can do it at Mach 2. We have to slow down silence, solitude, Sabbath. Why do we keep talking about that? Why do our discipleship classes built around these things? Why? Because as the pace goes up, there's a tendency to just kind of neglect what's going on in here. The, the depth issue is that paying, you're not paying attention to it because we're, so, we're moving so fast and we're distracted by so much. So we have to slow down. So the slowed down spirituality is a big part of what we pay attention to. Our part of the equation is this, right? Our part is to slow down and to focus on depth, silence, solitude, prayer. This is why I've assigned the staff. So if you're on staff at Eagle Church, it's a part of your job description. Four hours every month, you are to be away and alone, silent and still with God. That's why, why, is, why is that a part of the job description of every staff member? Because of this. And why do you hear me retreating off to monasteries all the time? So what's Pastor Eric doing at these monasteries? It's this. I got to slow down, be still, be quiet, be alone, pay attention to God. I got I to do it to, to, pay, to see what's going on in here. This is why our conversations and relationships are centered around a slowing down of our spirituality. We don't need a bunch of encouragement about how to go faster, about how to do more. We need to have conversations together in the community of Christ about, hey, slowing down to pay attention to the things that God's trying to help Samuel and the crew pay attention to here, saying, ah, I find a bunch of hagatons. And I want to develop something inside of them. Yes, they're ordinary on the outside for sure, but I'm going to do something in here. I'm going to strengthen the inner life to uphold the weight of whatever he's going to entrust out there. So in a sense today is our gathering. This is Sunday morning. If you want a good picture of what our church is about, here's what our church is about. We're just a bunch of ordinary people. Whom Jesus came looking for, and he found us in our ordinary lives. And he says, I pick you. And he drafts us into his story. And now what we're trying to do as a church is we're trying to help us pay attention to depth and then just allow him to move us out in breadth of whatever he wants to do. Whether it's a Jeff and Amy Lane type story, some of you may be going to the nations. Some of you may be just going to the inner city. Some of you may be just going across the street. Some of you just being a light in the current setting, or whatever it is, whatever he wants you to do, that there'd be a substance on the inside. The beams in here. Because God doesn't look always at the outward. He looks in the heart. He says, I pick you. And we pay attention to depth and we let God. Take care of the breath, whatever he wants to do. So, AARP. They say I'm about to go on the shelf, you know? Go to Denny's, get your discount. Get your Bluetooth speaker. I hear the discounts aren't that great, so maybe not. AARP says, Simpson, you're heading to the shelf. I think God's perspective is a little different. God actually said, right, 
I'm actually heading into my prime according to the spiritual leadership and productivity factors. So that's an encouragement to me and maybe some of you in the room as well. So the third most productive decade from spiritual fruitfulness standpoint, 50s. Second most productive, 70s. Number one most spiritually productive decade, 60s. So I'm going 3-1-2 over the next 30-year run. And here's my challenge to you. You hold me to it. No coasting. I'm not getting the Bluetooth speaker. I'm not going to the shelf. And I don't think neither are you. And so some of you in the room that are not in 50s, 60s, and 70s, what are you supposed to do with your 20s, 30s, and 40s? 20s, 30s, and 40s. Send those roots down deeply. Drill those, well, drill those wells deep. Because when you move to those stages of 50s, 60s, and 70s, you need to draw upon going deep with Scripture, deep with prayer, deep with trusting God, deep with community. You draw upon all that for what's going to be, I think, the most fruitful run of your life, which will be the 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond. And hallelujah, we have a congregation filled with many in this room who are stewarding those seasons exactly like that. And some of the younger ones in this room are super grateful because they sit across the table for someone who went David's way. Who said, you know what? Not perfect. Not an ideal life. No one in this room has an ideal life. But all of us in this room share this. We have a real life. Real brokenness, real heartache, real grief, real mess, amazing accomplishments, unbelievable God moments, a mixed bag of it all. A community of hagatons. So welcome to God's first round draft class, AARP included. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for David's life. Thank you for preserving this unbelievable biograph biography. Thank you that you would preserve 66 chapters for us to journey over these next several months. We want to enter into it with open hearts and open hands. I pray that this morning... Those in the room who maybe are coming in and maybe wrestling with, what's my Ephesians 2.10 purpose? What am I supposed to do with my one and only life? I pray they'd hear today that in Jesus' name, I pick you. And those who feel least qualified, first rounders. So the more unqualified you feel, God says, perfect, I pick you. And some in the room feel like, oh, you don't understand all the stuff that's happened in my background, all the cringe moments, all the mistakes, all the mess of this and that. And God says, yeah, I see it all. I pick you. I can work with all this. I didn't give up on David and I'm not going to give up on you. And so I pray you'd help us as a church, as a community, help us be the kind of people, Lord, who pay attention to depth and just trust you with the breadth. Help that be a legacy we leave in this Christian community around us as we reach out here. I pray when people come and intersect with the Eagle family, I pray that they would experience people of genuine depth. Depth of love for you and depth of love for people. That it be something real and authentic. That we just come as we are. And we bring the whole of our lives to you thankful for your love and grace. Thank you that you invite us in to what you're doing in this world. What an amazing invitation that we get to spend our one and only lives linked up with what you're doing. 
I pray that would always bring an appropriate, holy tremble and inspiration deep within. In Jesus' name, amen.